They are talking about stockpiling, my friends, and it is music to my ears. I mean, if China is going to flood the market with nickel, with cobalt, like, let's buy it. And they are discussing this. Big report out of Bloomberg News on mining.com. Fascinating. In-depth. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. There is so much going on. It's going to be a massive challenge to wrap everything up here and to condense everything that is in front of me on my screen for you here today. But I will do my best, my friends. So let's go. First of all, it is earning season here and the miners are reporting. We got some pretty major mining companies with results. We had Barrick Gold on February 14th and we also had Kinross Gold. They both did well. Interestingly, Barrick for 2023, reported 4 million ounces, and I would dare say only 4 million ounces per year of gold. They're actually going down. I mean, they may have plans to expand, and I'm sure they do, but I remember a few years ago when Barrick was at 5 million ounces a year, or at least that was the plan, and then I think there was an issue in PNG, and it turned into 4.5 million ounces. But all to say, only 4 million ounces but maybe going for quality over quantity. And interestingly, their copper output is surprisingly strong. With the help of ChatGPT here, I got some summaries of their earnings calls. You know, producing 420 million pounds of copper, which when you do the translation into tons, which is what we often talk about here, 210,000 tons of copper coming from Barrick. And don't forget, last year, Ivanhoe Mines and their massive Kamoa Kakula copper complex produced 393,000 tons of copper. So Barrick actually, you know, in 2023 at least, producing more than half of what Ivanhoe has produced. And they are sitting at about a $24 billion market cap in U.S. dollars there. Now, interestingly, operational improvements, especially at Nevada Gold Mines, which is, of course, the JV with Newmont and Pueblo Viejo in the Dominican Republic. Barrick reported a 7% year-on-year increase in operating cash flows and a 50% increase in free cash flow and significant increases in net earnings. The company also maintained its quarterly dividend of $0.10 per share. The results reflect Barrick's focus on overcoming challenges. You know, I did another search. You know, how much debt does Barrick have? As of September 30th, it was something like $4.7 billion. Maybe it's at four and a half now, which maybe explains the market cap because, again, we have Ivanhoe Mines, what feels like a relatively new company. You know, there's probably a lot of potential as far as growth. I imagine there is, and that probably comes into the price. They're at $12.5 billion in terms of their market cap. So they're already half the size of Barrick. And of course, Barrick has all these gold mines. It's producing 4 million ounces of gold. And it does make you wonder, because another you know interesting news story to cram in here is Stanley Druckenmiller, his family office, Duquesne, is buying Newmont, Barrick, and Tech, interestingly. And they got rid of Amazon, Alibaba, and Alphabet, aka Google. So that is according to Kitco News there, who reported on their filings. So very interesting shift there. And you look, I mean, let's look at the stock prices very quickly. Newmont's at $33. Like, no wonder Stanley Druckenmiller is interested. 
and you just see this ongoing downhill slide here. December 18th, they're at 42. It makes you wonder when Stanley Druckenmiller was buying. He could be down, or at least the family office could be down, you know, 30% here from the highs in December at $42, down now at $33. Let's take a quick look at Barrick on the New York Stock Exchange here. Uh, just to give us a reminder, $14.65. So these gold stocks are pretty beat up, and you see it in the charts here, you know, coming off of a big move in December. So Barrick reporting some good earnings, and just finally on Barrick. So where's the copper coming from? is an interesting question. And to answer that, it is coming out of Zambia, which if you remember last episode and you break out the map, is to the south and the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And of course, that's where Ivanhoe is. So it's tempting to call that copper country, isn't it? That is where their biggest mine is, the Lumwana mine, which they are in the process of expanding as well. And they hope to produce 240,000 tons of copper annually just out of that mine alone over the next 30 years. And also they have in Chile the Zaldivar mine. So Mark Brissot, the CEO of Barrick, has been making the point that he wants to get into copper. It seems like he's in copper, doesn't it? And what you'll see here, if we jump over to Agnico Eagle... I mean, you're looking at almost the same market cap, $23.75 billion U.S. market cap with Barrick at 24. Now, Agnico had their conference call on February 15th, the day after. Agnico produced 3.4 million ounces of gold, and again, Barrick at 4 million. Market cap is similar. Now, if you do a search, actually, on Barrick, Barrick has a bunch of debt. It's something like $4.7 billion as of September 30th, according to ChatGPT. So one wonders how much that is factored into the stock price because that is quite a bit of debt when you start having, you know, $4.5 billion, let's call it. And I mean, when does it roll over? And all of a sudden, are you going to pay 4 or 5% on that $4 billion? I mean, that probably is a drag on the stock price, but I'm not an analyst here, but just interesting information. Now, as far as Agnico Eagle is concerned, record gold production, they are catching up quickly here, and all of their major projects seem to be in Canada. Their key projects include the Detour Lake Mine, which is located in northeastern Ontario, and that is their biggest project. Then they have the Canadian Malarctic Complex, which is also in Canada. They have Meadowbank, which is the Amaruk mine in Nunavut, and also Hope Bay. These are all in Canada. And why this is so significant, just to give you context, you know, it wasn't that long ago, say maybe three years ago, when Agnico Eagle was producing maybe two million ounces of gold a year, and Barrick was hoping to produce five, and then there was problems at the mine in PNG, and I think it was like four and a half, 4.5 million ounces of gold. So they're actually going down, but their copper is increasing. And again, so out of Zambia and Chile, and of course, Agnico Eagle being a gold-centered company. One more company I wanted to touch on was Kinross. And of course, I remember Cam Curry in a recent interview kind of singing the praises of Kinross and saying how well they were doing 
And they did have a strong performance. The company delivered on its 2023 guidance with significant achievements, including the completion of the Tazayest and La Coipa projects, which drove significant free cash flow. Kinross expects to produce 2.1 million ounces of gold in 2024. So you see about half of Barrick. They have a market cap of $6 billion, interestingly, so a quarter of Barrick. And, you know, if you look at Ivanhoe Mines, as I mentioned before, it's at $12.5 billion, so about half the size, half the market cap of Barrick. Just to start giving you gauges on the size in terms of market cap here. Now, the Tazayest mine is located in Mauritania, which is in West Africa. It's part of the Sahel. If you actually look on the map, it is to the west of Mali and above Senegal. And it really reminds us of Jorge Ganoza's statement where he was saying how the Sahel and that area in West Africa, if you remove the borders, is the richest area for gold in the world. Now, I'm not sure if he means undeveloped or just in absolute terms, but all to say, just recollect that story we were looking at a few months ago, where Russia is helping Burkina Faso build a gold processing facility. So isn't that interesting? So interesting developments there. Now, while we're in West Africa, we discussed Senegal last week, and there have been developments there. The Constitutional Court ruled that President Macky Sall is not allowed to postpone the election there in Senegal, which again, when we looked at the geopolitical importance right near the top, is the fact that it has strong democratic institutions and has a good reputation for these institutions. So this was a big deal when Senegal's president said we were going to delay the election from February 25th all the way to December. So the Constitutional Council ruled Thursday that the move was unconstitutional and ordered the government to hold the election as soon as possible. A little vague there, presumably allowing enough time for campaigning. And this is AfricanNewsByTheWay.com. The panel acknowledged the February 25th wouldn't now be feasible, but said the government should act quickly. Now, the State Department also weighed in, who criticized the move last week, and this was on February 16th. The United States welcomes the February 15th decision by Senegal's Constitutional Council to restore the presidential electoral calendar in accordance with Senegal's constitution. We note President Sall's announcement that he will fully implement the Constitutional Council's decision and take the necessary steps to organize the election as quickly as possible. We urge all stakeholders to come together in the spirit of Senegal's strong democratic tradition to support a free and fair election conducted in a peaceful and timely manner. The United States stands with the Senegalese people in their unwavering support for democracy. That's Matthew Miller at the State Department. So, interesting development there. One wonders if there was pressure from outside, particularly the U.S., which is seeing all of these countries here in the Sahel fall like dominoes and maybe was not happy to see that, as we saw from last week. And also, the people didn't seem too happy from what I was reading there last week. It looks and sounds like they take a lot of pride in their democratic institutions over in Senegal. So interesting development there. Still vague, though on when that date should be, as soon as possible, is the quote. So that is your update on Senegal there. Now, just a couple of more stories I want to touch on here. 
because the pieces of the puzzle are starting to fit together a little bit more clearly now for me the deeper I go into these stories, which is there are natural resources and there are massive industries, and really all of these nation states are competing to basically own and dominate as much as possible these industries like the automotive industry and also we're seeing solar panels are becoming a massive issue where Europe's solar industry is basically calling it a quote-unquote existential threat right now that Chinese competition is posing towards it. So that is interesting. This is on Euronews. It says here cheap Chinese solar panels are flooding the EU market and threatening the viability of homegrown companies. So once again, we see the playbook here, don't we? So Europe is facing some pretty major challenges in their solar panel industry. They are asking the EU for emergency support. And this is the problem that we we're discussing last week in regard to the car industry. And we have a couple of headlines I want to touch on there before we get to Stefan Sklepowicz on this week's CEO Spotlight. And we have a wonderful interview with Jonathan Lafontaine on really the philosophical underpinning and how Quebec created its critical and strategic mineral plan. Just a beautiful outline here, almost a blueprint here on how to create a critical and strategic mineral strategy. And we discuss the difference between the two. A very valuable conversation with Jonathan Lafontaine from the Ministry of Natural Resources coming up on our feature content. Before we get to our CEO spotlight, though, and our news and our metal prices and the feature content with Jonathan Lafontaine, just a couple of final stories here on the automobile sector. Interesting developments here, because, of course, the EU has been trying to keep BYD, Build Your Dreams, the Chinese automaker, out of Europe because the competition is too strong. You know, what they call unfair trade practices, but which is probably, at the end of the day, it's just they don't want their car industry decimated. That's how important cars are to the economy. And we have a couple of interesting headlines here. China's BYD plans new electric vehicle plant in Mexico. Nikkei reported on Wednesday as they seek to establish an export hub to the United States. BYD, known for its cheaper models and more varied lineup, recently overtook its biggest rival Tesla to become the world's top EV maker in terms of sales. And price, you know, it's always back to Walmart. Price matters. Why pay more? Price really matters. And we have this accompanying story. This is also Reuters. Ford and GM CEOs open to partnerships to compete with China. This BYD thing, it seems like people are scared. And they probably have a good reason to be so. And again, as we were mentioning last week, when you own the entire supply chain, like the vertical supply chain there, from concept to completion, when you're supplying the metals, you can get them at a cheaper price if you're the one producing them. So when you own the battery supply chain and everybody has to buy their batteries off you or get their raw materials off you, whether it's lithium or nickel or graphite, you are at a disadvantage. So let's take a quick look here. February 15th, the chief executives of U.S. automaker Ford and General Motors said on Thursday they would consider partnerships to cut electric vehicle technology costs as China rivals move into the U.S. and European markets. So isn't that interesting? Once thought impossible, 
And here's a quote, if there's a way we can partner with others, especially on technologies that are not consumer facing and be more efficient with R&D as well as capital, we're all in, end quote, GM CEO Mary Barra told investors at a conference sponsored by Wolf Research. Ford CEO Jim Farley opened the door to collaboration with other automakers to cut EV battery costs during a separate presentation at the conference earlier on Thursday. EV battery costs. Where are those EV batteries coming from? Now, final story here, and you can file this in the never learn our lesson category, CNBC, Airbus says competition from China's Comac C919 is, quote, not going to rock the boat. And, you know, this is what people were saying about the Chinese car industry not that many years ago. And here's a couple of key points from CNBC. The Comac C919 is not very different from what Airbus and Boeing already have in the market. Yeah, but if they can do it at a lesser cost, that's going to be a problem. And that it was not going to rock the boat in particular. Christian Scher, chief executive officer at Airbus's aircraft commercial business, said, and another quote here, it looks like a bit of an Airbus narrow body, end quote. Scherer said, tongue-in-cheek, noting that the C919 is, quote, not very different, end quote, from what Airbus and Boeing already have in the market. And kind of making fun, seemingly, of, you know, oh, China's just copying us. But really, that should alarm you, because one imagines they can build that thing for cheaper. Okay? So I don't know if, you know, Christian Scherer is going to be speaking tongue-in-cheek, you know, three years from now. So... Again, if we, you know, take seriously what we're seeing with BYD, you know, wanting to open up in Mexico and there's GM and Ford, frankly, panicking, because what else would bring them together? I mean, could we ever imagine these massive automakers working together? So all to say, we have a ton of amazing news stories to look at here. We're going to continue this banquet of information, as I like to call it here. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to Stefan Sklepowicz, Vice President of Corporate Development at Kirkland Lake Discoveries for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Stefan Sklepowicz, VP of Corporate Development at Kirkland Lake Discoveries for this week's CEO Spotlight. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Well, it's wonderful to have you. A Canadian exploration company is always a delight to have on the Northern Miner podcast. So tell us a little bit about the company first, uh, Kirkland Lake Discoveries, and tell us a little bit about the history of the company and what you guys are working on. Well, Kirk and Lake Discoveries has been around since May of last year, where we did a, a transaction with Newfound Gold to bring in the Lucky Strike property. Previous to that, we were Warrior Gold. And so at that time, uh, we ended up raising $7.8 million and forming the largest land package in the, the Kirk and Lake camp. Uh, the previous 10 years uh, with Champagne Resources as a private co and then uh, into Warrior Gold, uh, was an accumulation stage where they were building up this land package year after year, working with prospectors and local landholders and stakeholders. And so basically it took about 10 years to accumulate this 38,000 hectare land package in one of the best jurisdictions in the world. And so we're 
currently exploring for gold in an orogenic sense on the west side of our property. And then on the east side of the property, we're looking at an intrusive gold copper type of system uh, mineralization that we're, we're chasing down, currently drilling and exploring. Okay, excellent. So this is the Lucky Strike project in Ontario. That's correct. Yes. So um, basically, Newfound Gold had this in their portfolio. And, you know, for your listeners that don't know the Newfound Gold story, it's uh, pretty phenomenal out in Newfoundland at the Queensway, where they had absolutely massive high grade intercepts. And so this 100 plus kilometer property was basically sitting in their portfolio, not getting any value. And so they vended it to us uh, to, to basically, you know, put it into the spotlight and get some exploration on it. So they're a major shareholder of ours now. And we got this this lovely piece of real estate that we got to work on right away last year. Um, and so, you know, flew high resolution geophysics over the the property to dial in. And some intrusives really popped out on that property that we were able to explore in Ground Truth. And one of them shared a very close uh, styles. It was a magnetic low surrounded by magnetic highs that lined up a lot with the upper beaver at Agnico, uh, which is a, a copper gold intrusive system just to the, the southwest, about six kilometers. Oh, interesting. So it's right nearby. And I think I, I remember actually Newfound Gold. Wasn't Eric Sprott a big investor in Newfound Gold? That's correct. Yes. And and when we did our financing with that transaction, Eric came on as a 6% shareholder with our company as well. He's a strong believer in gold and the the value of gold, especially for as a monetary metal. And so he, he loved our story and, and definitely got on board behind us as well. Okay, excellent. And indeed he is. Indeed he is. So sounds like you're doing some drilling there. Like, where are you in this process? How long have you been drilling? Uh, kind of, you know, where are we in the in the stages? Are things permitted? Uh, where, where are we in this project? So the permits were applied for in the late fall of 2023 and were approved. And so we have basically the entire Lucky Strike property is is fully permitted. We're currently drilling at the hurricane zone, which is that area that matched up nicely with Upper Beaver. And we're about 1,500 meters in at this point in time of 4,000 meters. So we're expecting, you know, anywhere between four and six weeks left of that program and results to, to follow up uh, shortly after that. And in terms of financing, then, do you feel like you have everything you need? Is it hard to secure drills? Like, are there any big stumbling blocks for you in a sense right now? Or is it simply you kind of have what you need and now it's just about executing? Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Adrian. We we really do have everything that we need. And so we're sitting just shy of $5 million at this point in time. And in this market, that's challenging that a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of junior explorers aren't, aren't sitting in that same situation. So we're we're fortunate enough to be there. We have recently just signed a exploration agreement, cooperation agreement with our local First Nation group, the Beaver House First Nation. And so that's green lighted our project from that regard and that we have full support. So they're supporting us both with access to the property as well as, you know, workforce to work on, you know, core cutting and, and line clearing, et cetera. Basically, everything else is lined up. And so we're, you know, we're, we're currently drilling to explore this new target that in turn allows us or could be, you know, potential 
company making and and the nice thing is that we don't need to go back to the till right away to raise more money we have enough to get us through this year and into next and continue that exploration yeah and i I understand in a sense you can't make too many i guess forward-looking statements but i guess just in terms of hunches like from a geological perspective like do you have a sense of what you think might be there well like you said i can't do forward-looking statements but the rocks have very similar characteristics to what we saw at the core at Upper Beaver. And so the system that we're chasing is an intrusive system, and we know they don't happen in isolation. So a lot of times you'll get these repeating patterns or a particular area where these intrusives happen a lot. And so the proximity to the Upper Beaver plays a part from that regard. So we're also noticing that the same alteration styles, this epidote alteration, or hematite alteration is happening. And so we're getting these, you know, bright green rocks, bright red rocks from, you know, the classic grays and, and blacks that would normally be that rock type. And so the mineralization's there. We have copper and gold across that system. The geophysical signature is there. And the rocks and alteration appear very similar to what was found at Upper Beaver. And so, you know, without making a forward-looking statement, we're really excited about this target. Um, and it it has very minimal testing up to this point in time. Wallbridge held the property in 2008 and 2009, and they put a thousand meters into it. And the to give you perspective on that, it's a three kilometer by seven kilometer anomaly. So putting a, a pinhole in something that size, it's not the easiest thing to find. And so our geologists this past summer tripped over these rocks when they were ground truthing this anomaly. And it really, you know, the, that alteration was so extreme that a geologist of 40 years said, you know, this is the most altered rock I've ever seen. So for us, yeah, we're, we're really excited about this target. So looking out then, what can investors expect? What's the roadmap? Well, basically, we're looking to see what comes from these drill holes as a a guide as to what the next steps are going to be. We have our summer exploration program planned out for the lucky strike where there's these other intrusives are already present and just haven't had enough days to explore it. Being a, a large land package, it requires a bit more time to explore. And so we have, you know, the Copper King, which is a, a previous mine that that's a of all things it's a copper hosted in quartz veins and so with the geophysics and and with the lighter that was flown there was some structures that were identified that were cross-cutting the existing structure that the shaft was on and so with those structures aligning a lot of times you can get some blowout of fluids and so that's a an area of interest that we want to get back to this summer and explore a little bit closer and then throughout the property as well, there's other intrusives that have come in that, again, they just haven't had enough exploration. And so, as we know, those systems, you know, they don't happen in isolation. And because there's the proximities there and because those intrusives are in the same rocks, it's, uh, you know, there, there's lots of steps that can happen there from an exploration standpoint. On the west side of our property, which is a little bit different, it's more like the the Macassa mine. So that high grade, narrower width intervals. But some of the past drilling that we've done there has had up to 350 grams per ton over half meter. So really rich, high grade gold. And so that's another area for an orogenic system. It just needs more time exploring a little bit further. So there's no shortage of discovery potential on our property. It's just a matter of 
you know, time and having the right team, which we do. We have a board of directors that are a combination of geologists and financiers who have all worked up stories and sold them off to major players. Um, and that's that's exactly what our game plan is. Our goal is for our company. Working in Kirkland Lake, we have the neighbors that are all major producers and some of the lowest costs in the world for drilling. And so uh, we couldn't be in a better place with a you know a better outlook for a company. Stefan Sklepowicz, Vice President of Corporate Development at Kirkland Lake Discoveries. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And thank you once again to Kirkland Lake Discoveries for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, well, actually, let's turn to the Globe and Mail very quickly here first. Canadian pension funds must invest more in the domestic resource sector. So Frank Justra and Pierre Lassonde wrote in the Globe and Mail an opinion piece. And here we see the global race to secure critical minerals for our green future is on. And sadly, Canada is very much at risk of losing the plot. In the past 20 years, Canada has lost almost all of its mining giants, including Inco, Alcan, Falconbridge, and Naranda, to multinationals. And along with them, the head office and research development talent pool, Inco, for example, was at one point the top battery technology expert in the world. The solution lies in our Canadian pension funds, dubbed the Maple 8, representing 35% of all Canadian savings. Canadian investments do not just affect pension portfolios, they also have considerable impact on Canada's economy, generating jobs, improving incomes, and increasing contributions to retirement plans. So, all to say, Pierre Lassonde and Frank Justra making the case that Canadian pension funds need to invest in the resource sector, interestingly. Just another paragraph here, a couple of paragraphs down, a variety of critical minerals are required for energy systems such as batteries, solar, wind, and nuclear. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper, uranium, graphite, and rare earth elements are of particular importance, as is low carbon emission metallurgical coal for steel production. By some estimates, by 2040, we will need to mine four times the critical minerals we produce today. Seemingly overnight, it's as if the world awakened to the reality that securing these minerals has become a matter of national security. With the added challenges of deglobalization and the balkanization of supply chains, resource nationalism is rearing its ugly head and battle lines are being drawn. So finally, just to get the conclusion here, if the pension funds invest more in the domestic resource sector, it would allow Canada to compete with Saudi Arabia, China, and others. Junior resource companies are like seedlings for our future mineral needs. We need to nurture them. More importantly, Canada needs to stop being a wallflower, waiting for an invitation to the party. We must get ourselves onto the dance floor and our very own pension funds should make for suitable dance partners. So really asking Canadian pensions to really step up in the highly risky junior resource sector, who knows, maybe a big ask. Let's continue on. Uh, just an interesting, noteworthy op-ed in the industry there this week. Also this week, this is Reuters via mining.com, Canada to accelerate critical mineral mining. Canada plans to boost its energy security by slashing the time it takes to develop new critical mineral mines by nearly a decade. With improved permitting processes, Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson told Reuters on Tuesday. Ottawa is focused on six critical minerals key to making electric vehicles and wind turbines. Lithium, graphite, nickel, cobalt, copper, and so-called rare earth elements. Wilkinson said the mining and processing of critical materials was currently too dominated by China. 
quote, we're looking at how do we optimize the regulatory and permanent processes so you can take what is a 12 to 15 year process and bring it down to maybe five, end quote. Quote, there are ways you can just do things smarter. There's no reason that you can't do permitting of different things between federal and provincial governments at the same time instead of doing them sequentially. It's interesting where there's a will, there's a way. You know, this different permitting between jurisdictions has really been a source of contention in the exploration sector here for years. It seems now that the government is getting serious about securing these, you know, critical and strategic minerals that now it looks like permitting is going to be sped up. Canada plans to reduce the time to approve mining permits by better funding the regulatory agency to get rid of paperwork backlogs and running permitting and environmental assessment processes at the same time. And again, one could argue this should have been done from the very outset. The country will have to continue importing cobalt, Wilkinson said, due to its limited resources of the metal. China controls most of the world's refined cobalt and rare earth supplies. To cover costs, Canada is putting in place investment tax credits to pay for a significant chunk of the capital associated with new mining and mineral processing projects, Wilkinson said. Investment tax credits. Interesting when we think of our discussion with Ron Birnbaum on the issues with flow-through share financing. Funds are also ready to be made available for infrastructure like transmission lines and roads that will help accelerate the development of new minerals, he added. The government is also investing billions of dollars in several companies' battery factory projects in Canada, including Swedish battery producer Northvolt and German car manufacturer Volkswagen. And finally, he said streamlining permitting and environmental assessments would not lead to corner cutting. Quote, I think the environmental community also recognizes that there is no energy transition without significantly enhanced volumes of critical minerals. End quote. So another very interesting development there. Continuing on, this is also Reuters, and just a couple of paragraphs here. IEA, International Energy Agency, to launch security program for minerals critical to energy sector. So we are, you know, once again at the center of the conversation increasingly here in the global political arena. The International Energy Agency is launching a program to secure the supply of minerals critical to energy security as demand rises fast while manufacturing remains in the hands of a few key producers, its executive director said on Tuesday. Fatih Byral said the production of electric cars, solar panels, and other energy equipment requires a steady supply of minerals such as lithium, cobalt, and copper. The IEA continues to keep an eye on oil and gas markets, Byral said, but the supply chain of energy technologies is an important emerging security challenge. Quote, it is the reason we are embarking on a critical mineral security program, he said in a speech. Currently, we are A, not able to keep up with demand, and B, the ability of manufacturing these critical mines is concentrated in one single country or two, end quote. Now, judging from what we're seeing in the battery metals markets, which have fallen through the floor, it does seem they are able to keep up with demand as it stands. I mean, in the future is another story, perhaps, but which makes me think this is really about the supply chains being concentrated in China. As he said, B, the ability of manufacturing these critical minerals is concentrated in one single country or two. So national security becoming a larger and larger issue here in the natural resource conversation. Continuing on, we have Alicia Hyatt, optimism for metals clashes with reality for juniors ahead of PDAC. So of course, 
The massive Prospectors and Developer Association of Canada convention is going to be in Toronto on March 3rd to 6th, only two weeks from now. And Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt goes in depth on what is happening with juniors and financing. And it is quite an interesting article here. So just a couple of paragraphs. Last year, for the first time in a decade, there wasn't a single financing above $125 million on the TSX Venture Exchange, where many junior mining exploration companies are listed. Deals at the $200 million level had previously been fairly common, Jeff Colleen, Policy and Program Director for PDAC, said in an interview. Quote, the juniors, particularly those outside of the critical mineral sphere, are facing more hurdles in terms of accessing capital. When they're accessing it, there's just smaller deals being done. End quote. Total financing on the TSX venture has fallen for three years running, with the exchange falling far behind the main board in equity raised for the first time since 2017. Last year, the gap between the two grew to $1.1 billion, with risk capital suffering overall, though junior miners actually, quote, punched above their weight accounting for three-quarters of all funds raised on the Venture Exchange last year. And scrolling down a bit, this is a very in-depth article, which I highly recommend you go read on northernminer.com. More governments around the world are waking up to the crucial role of metals in the energy transition. It's being reflected in new interest among international delegates coming to PDAC convention, Colleen says. Quote, the global conversation is changing. There's a growing awareness about critical minerals, and people are recognizing PDAC is the place to be. There's a real global commitment that we're seeing towards electrification, clean technology, and emissions reduction that's only going to happen if the minerals industry is brought to that table, end quote. So it should be an interesting PDAC. And again, uh, go check out Alicia's article there, Optimism for Metals Clashes with Reality for Juniors Ahead of PDAC, which basically sums it all up in one line. Also, Mexican mining sector balks at plan to ban open pit mines. So after uh, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's proposal to ban open pit mining, and this is Reuters via mining.com, although according to this article, the proposal is unlikely to pass in the short term, as Lopez Obrador does not have the two-thirds supermajority in Congress needed to change the Constitution. So looking for constitutional changes against the development of open pit mines. Incredible. I didn't realize it was to that degree, so a little bit of pushback there in Mexico. This is also interesting. So we remember the gold processing facility that was announced in December that was going to be built in Burkina Faso. We have a story here from Bloomberg News. Africa moves a step closer to continent's first cobalt refinery, African countries are continuing a general trend we saw also in Indonesia, which is to process these metals locally, because apparently this is where a lot of the money is made. Africa could have its first cobalt sulfate refinery by the end of 2025. One of the few outside of China capable of making the product that's a key component of lithium-ion batteries. You know, these are not the kind of dates we're used to in the mining sector. We're used to five or six years away. This is starting to feel like a space race, isn't it? This is a critical minerals race. I mean, we've been talking about it for years as being the center of the conversation, but it's starting to become unavoidably true from everything I'm seeing here. It's just getting more and more momentum. Nigeria-based African Finance Corp last week signed an expression of interest to provide $100 million in financing to Kobaloni Energy, backed by mining veteran Mick Davis's Vision Blue for the planned facility in Zambia. So Zambia, 
making more moves in mining there. Zambia, again, we last week heard about the, the railroads. You wonder, you know, it's sort of like they say you're the average of the five people you hang out with. It kind of reminds me, I mean, their neighbor is the Democratic Republic of Congo, who is making all sorts of deals, right, with the copper and cobalt. Maybe Zambia is just going like, why aren't we doing this and raising themselves up? So very interesting to see that it's going to be in Zambia. And continuing on, we have this column from Reuters on mining.com. West challenges China's critical minerals hold on Africa. And it says here China's CMOC group overtook Glencore to become the world's largest producer of cobalt last year as it ramped up its new Kisanfu mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The company's production leapt by 174% year-on-year to 55,000 metric tons, accounting for over a quarter of global demand of 213,000 tons. Again, we are back at the playbook here. Kisanfu, in which Chinese battery giant CATL owns a minority stake, has flooded the cobalt market. And what is the playbook? For those new listeners, it is China flooding the market of a certain metal in order to put everybody out of business and then owning that market. And we're seeing it over and over again, even potentially in the nickel market, audaciously enough. And again, is this always just an accident? This is why I call it the playbook. I mean, if it happened once, we could say, well, that was circumstance, but there seems to be a pattern here. Make of it what you will, dear listener. The Cobalt Institute estimates global production exceeded demand by 12,500 tons in 2023, making it one of the, quote, biggest surpluses in recent years, end quote. CMOC is unconcerned. It plans to lift output further this year, despite a slump in the cobalt price from $40 in May 2022 to a current $13. So it's back to this issue that... You know, if you're not going to have government support, what are we going to do? But the West is now challenging China's tight grip on the mineral riches lying beneath the soil of the Congo and its neighbor, Zambia. This new scramble for Africa comes with a post-colonial twist since both countries have ambitions to be major actors in the critical mineral space. The clue is in the name. The Copper Belt, straddling northern Zambia and the southern part of the Congo, still contains some of the richest copper and cobalt deposits in the world. So I've been calling it copper country. I guess it is called the Copper Belt. Cobalt Metals, a California-based metals exploration company backed by billionaires Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, claims its Mingomba project in Zambia boasts copper grades of around 5% compared with 1% for most big mines in Chile, the world's top producer. Few Western mining companies have until now ventured into the renaissance copper belt Wary of the daunting mix of political risk, poor infrastructure, and in the case of the Congolese cobalt, the ethical issues around artisanal mining. Fewer still have lasted. U.S. producer Freeport McMoran bought the Tenke Fungurume copper cobalt mine in production in 2009. It sold its holding to CMOC in 2016, giving the Chinese company its first foothold in the Congo. You know, develops the mine, brings it into production and sells it to China in seven years later in a tough market. Freeport went on to sell CMOC the Kisamfu deposit in 2020, saying it was, quote, no longer strategic, end quote, to its long-term growth. CMOC quite evidently views the deposit very differently, and Western governments also seem to be coming to the view that if you're strategically short of the energy transition metals such as copper and cobalt, there's only one place to head, back 
to Africa. So very interesting story there on mining.com. And just to wrap up here, BHP also had earnings. They were nothing special. We'll go into them more next week when Rio Tinto reports their earnings. But ultimately, interesting headline here, Reuters via mining.com. BHP says Nickel faces, quote, difficult multi-year run, end quote. So interesting developments with BHP in the nickel market. Another headline here, Australia lists nickel as critical mineral to unlock billions in support. This is Reuters via mining.com. So governments are hip to what is going on here in the nickel market. And we have a quote from Resource Minister Madeline King, who said in a statement, quote, the international nickel price is forecast to stay relatively low through 2024 and likely for several years to come until the surplus of nickel in the market is corrected. In the meantime, this puts further Australian nickel operations at risk. Also, scrolling down a bit, Glencore, Australia's second largest nickel producer behind BHP, said it was, quote, very concerned, end quote, by the recent closures and nickel announcements and said that a comprehensive government policy response was needed to support the sector amid, quote, challenging market conditions. And finally, something else we've been discussing for years. Australia and some producers have been pushing for a, quote unquote, green premium in nickel to account for stronger regulations on environmental issues, governance and worker safety. But so far, that has not emerged as a must have for buyers. Very, very interesting. So continuing on, Western Australia offers royalty relief to struggling nickel producers. Another headline there, that is Reuters via mining.com. France offers loan to New Caledonia nickel firm Prony to avert collapse. This is also Reuters via mining.com. So the French government has agreed to provide $150 million U.S. loan to Prony Resources to avert the collapse of the New Caledonian nickel producer as Paris pursues negotiations to salvage the Pacific Territory's loss-making nickel industry. A very interesting, another headline here, Albemarle says lithium prices are unsustainably low, Bloomberg News via mining.com. So you do get the picture here in our global news show, as the politicians increasingly are being forced to deal with the mining sector, you are starting to see this turn into, as it always kind of was, you know, commodities and metals are at the center of the mandala here. And now it seems to be really, you know, after years of really being ignored and out of fashion, metals are all the rage here in the global political discussion. You could argue after war, and it even is involved in the war discussion. It is the main conversation here. Quite a change of events. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Let's take a quick look at the bond market for context. The U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.27%. That is 0.1% higher than last week. So bond yields in the U.S. continue to rise. The U.K. 10-year gilt is at 4.05%. That is down 0.02%. So edging a little lower in yields in the U.K. 
And Italy also edging lower at 3.86% yield on the 10-year Italy bond, and that is down 0.08% from last week. So interesting situation where the 10-year bond in the U.S. goes higher and U.K. and Italy go lower. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,037.70 per ounce. That is $4 lower than last week and a bit of a boring gold price here. The last, geez, two, four, seven weeks is between, at least when we register the price here, is between 2029 and 2044, a $15 range here. According to our weekly informal prices here in the last seven weeks, silver is above $23 at $23.13 per ounce. That is 19 cents higher than last week. So silver higher. Platinum is trading at $899.24 per ounce, so $10 higher than last week. And palladium has jumped to $948.79 per ounce. That is $59 higher than last week. So a much larger jump in palladium there after last week. Platinum and palladium reaching parity. So palladium bounces off of that. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.80 per pound. That is $0.08 higher than last week. Iron ore is also higher at $129.29 per metric ton. That is a dollar higher than last week. So edging slightly higher. Aluminum is a penny lower at a dollar per pound. And lead is at $0.94 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Nickel is at $7.31 per pound. That is 20 cents higher than last week. And tin is also higher at $12.23 per pound. That is 27 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $12.95 per pound. Lithium is a penny lower at $13.54 per kilogram. So again, just hanging out in the $13 level. And uranium is slightly lower at $103.20 per pound. That is $3 lower than last week. And finally, zinc is $0.03 cents higher at $1.09 per pound. And that is $0.03 cents higher than last week. Zooming out, basically a bit of a muddled market here with individual stories more dictating prices than anything. Gold a little boring, silver slightly higher, palladium bouncing after hitting parity with platinum, copper edging along, aluminum, lead... You know, nickel showing a bit of a, you know, bounce there. Tin back above $12, whereas the battery metals, cobalt and lithium, a little bit more have been there, and uranium remaining above 100 bucks, and zinc always showing a little bit more strength, interestingly. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Jonathan Lafontaine, Strategic Advisor for Mineral Exploration and Promotion for Quebec's Ministry of Natural Resources, to the show for the very first time. I met Jonathan in London at the Global Mining Symposium, and it was quite impressive. I'll never forget Sean Rosen there of Cisco Development, really singing the praises of Quebec. And many people in the mining industry do. And so maybe I thought there was something to be learned here. And so Jonathan Lafontaine joins us and really shares Quebec's philosophy from a governmental point of view on critical and strategic minerals, what the difference is between the two, which was quite illuminating and something I'd never heard before, and really where this is all going and what's going right 
in Quebec. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show, Jonathan Lafontaine, Strategic Advisor for Mineral Exploration and Promotion for Quebec's Ministry of Natural Resources. Jonathan, good to see you again and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Adrian. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I remember talking to you in London for the Global Mining Symposium. I guess that was in October now, and I was very impressed by just Quebec's, you know, very pragmatic and active and really conscientious approach to natural resources. Was it Sean Rosen who was yes. saying of Osisco Development, we just couldn't say enough good things really about Quebec on our panel there. So I thought maybe this would be instructive, informative, as we have this larger debate around the world with strategic minerals here. In a sense, maybe you could just start us out before we go into how it came about. In a sense, give us a big picture view, if you can, about you know mining in Quebec and where things are, kind of like a big sure. picture overview. Absolutely. Quebec has always had a long-standing tradition of mining. Quebec has you know, mining regions, especially in the Abitibi Gold Belt. So for decades or probably closer to a century now, Quebec has really been a very active mining jurisdiction. Consistently ranks in the top 10 in the Fraser Institute surveys. It's consistently one of the three big exploration provinces in Canada. And so Quebec has a very, a very good understanding of what the mining process is in general. And I think one of the, the, the very instructive things about Quebec is that in the past few years, Quebec has taken this background in mining in general and has looked forward to say, okay, well, where is mining going in the next few years? And that really has helped to set the scene for one of the most important plans that Quebec has put together for critical and strategic minerals. I think that's really where the uh, instigating elements started from. Fascinating. Critical and strategic minerals are front and center here as governments around the world, particularly in the West, are trying to secure their supply chain. They're trying to basically, you know, get a little bit of independence really from, you know, China and certain strategic minerals like rare earths. Now, Quebec has, as far as I understand, a kind of action plan, and I guess you can tell us uh, the details on it. But first, how did you go about creating a plan for Quebec? How did this all come about to where you are right now with critical minerals? It started essentially a little bit before COVID. So in the uh, late 2010s, the USGS started coming out with lists of what they considered critical minerals. The geopolitical situation was coming to the front, understanding that there were monopolies or pseudo-monopolies with respect to mineral resources. That was becoming a very important topic. The idea of French-roaring, the idea of building resilient value chains for minerals, that was something that was becoming more and more important. And it was highlighted during the COVID years. That was really one of the key you know, triggers to get all governments, not just Quebec, but a lot of governments around the world to understand that, no, 
to build resilient development chains, resilient mineral chains, we need to develop our own chains of fabrication, of processing, of mining. And especially for critical minerals, it's driven by three things. The first thing is the digitization of everything. And what I mean by that is are things like the Internet of Things, you know, uh, Wi-Fi enabled thermostats, Wi-Fi everywhere, laptops. You know, very few people don't work on laptops today. The desktop computing is a, sort of a thing of the past. And the second thing that is really motivating this is the energy transition. What I mean by that is moving away from fossil fuel generated electricity to renewable energy sources. And that's not just in Quebec, that's everywhere around the world. Texas, I think, is one of the largest wind producing states in the United States. I mean, it, this is moving forward. And the third concept is the electrification of transport, specifically of personal transport. So we have a style of life that is very uh, difficult to replace in terms of personal transportation. And whether it is through batteries or any other source of portable energy, whether it be hydrogen or whatever it is, I think the electrification of personal transport specifically, but all transportation are three important drivers. And the thing to really highlight and to remember, none of these three things is going away anytime soon. And this is consumer driven. This isn't public policy. This is what people want. And that is going to drive what is going to be developed in the next few decades. I think that's really one of the key aspects. Interesting. So this interest, you might even say, by the Quebec government into, you know, what's sometimes called critical and sometimes strategic, and we'll get into that, minerals, this was driven by a sense of looking at larger trends in society and saying, this is where things are going. How do we want Quebec to position itself uh, within that context. Is that what you're that, saying? That's exactly right. So in the late 2010s, the government of Quebec had a certain public consultation. So we consulted certain groups, certain civil members of society, some First Nations groups, and really certain things were highlighted. And these are the things that we've put together in our critical and strategic mineral plan. So being able to discuss with different communities with different stakeholders, not just with mining companies, not just with investors, but through, you know, a broad stroke through society. We had a real intuitive sense of, okay, well, this is what people expect from a government. This is what the government should be doing to help foster a mining culture looking forward to the era where critical and strategic minerals are going to be in greater and greater demand. And Quebec did this knowing quite well that, well, there are a lot of critical and strategic minerals in the ground in Quebec. So if we want to be able to harness these resources, well, we have to have a society that understands what it is that we're doing. They understand where resources are coming from and what they're going to be used for. So it seems like a pretty large task in a sense that the government, you know, was facing here to a certain degree. So where do you start? I guess you do first isolate the minerals that you think you might need. Is the ultimate goal, in a sense, to have a kind of vertical supply chain where you don't need to go anywhere outside of even Quebec or Quebec and Ontario 
in order to get the minerals you need, say, to build electric cars? Or did it start with choosing minerals? And I guess that's based on those three big themes that you identified. In a sense, what next after you identify the themes? So essentially what happened was we recognized that critical and strategic minerals based on those themes were going to be a part of our uh, mineral resources for decades to come. And we wanted to set the table so that we could appropriately set up what we need to have winning conditions so that these resources could be developed. How did we go about this? Well, we did a few things concurrently. One of the things was to develop the different orientations that we needed as a government. So one of the things was to explore what was really the potential and bring in geoscientific knowledge, you know, developing our networks of research and development for critical and strategic minerals. Another important orientation that we put together in the plan was to help develop what it is that we need to put together this plan. So set aside the resources, you know, uh, develop partnerships with other government institutions like Investissement in Quebec. And we wanted to think about the infrastructure that we needed. We also included in this plan a concept of recycling. We know that critical and strategic minerals are going to be used for a long time to come. And they're very important to the economy going forward. But the general public, especially in Quebec, have cited that, you know, we can recycle a lot of these materials. So it has to be a part of this plan. It has to be a component of this plan. Of course, today, there aren't that many, for instance, if you think about electric vehicle batteries, there aren't that many electric vehicles that have come to the end of their useful life. So recycling at the moment might not be the largest economic component, but we've made a space for it. We understand that it's going to be a part of developing our critical and strategic mineral space. And the other orientation was to be able to communicate what it is that we're doing. How do we work? How does the mineral ecosystem operate? And we have an important action item based on raising awareness of the importance of critical and strategic minerals to the general public in Quebec. And we also do a lot of outreach outside of Quebec to highlight the importance of what we're doing within the province to highlight the importance of Quebec as a stable, reliable partner for the development of critical and strategic minerals. Now, within all of this, of course, we have our lists and our lists are based on what are the probable developments that we could see happening in the province. And Quebec was very strategic about the way that we wanted to go about this in the sense that we knew where we were in North America geographically. Of course we did. We know that we have, you know, a, a manufacturing base in Ontario and in the U.S. Midwest that is dominant for developing vehicles. But Quebec has decided that we would invest rather, instead of developing electric vehicles ourselves, we wanted to develop the components that would go into electric vehicles. So there is a natural consumer base, a natural economic tie that we already have with the United States, with Ontario, for the development of electric vehicles. Knowing that we have the resources and knowing that their demand is going to be there, how far can we go in the development chain? And so, so Quebec attracted a lot of interested parties to develop 
projects in Quebec. Some of the projects are relatively well known. I'll cite uh, GM POSCO as one of the uh, instigators of a large set of processing companies that have set up shop in the area of Bécancourt, and there are others. But really, the understanding that we can develop and we can process some of these critical minerals, and we know there's going to be a client base in Ontario, in the U.S. Midwest, well, that really helps support our initiatives in that sense. Very interesting. So in a sense, it was a very, I guess we might say, tactical approach that it's like, we're not necessarily going to try and build the cars. We already know where the cars are being built and they're near us, to use the electric vehicle example. So let's make sure that these car manufacturers have at least the minerals that we can provide. Let's make sure we're doing our best to provide it for them. That's exactly right. And so that strategy, the battery strategy, was put together to try to attract processors in the province. And we try to set the table because we know these processors are going to need the raw materials. So we've also, at the same time, concurrently set up a favorable system so that explorers and miners can develop the natural resources within the province. And that's going to help the ecosystem. Now, you've touched on one thing at the same time that I wasn't able to address quite yet, and that was with respect to how, you know, which minerals do we pick? That battery strategy was one of the clearest examples of that's how we pick our minerals that will be a part of the critical and strategic mineral plan. One of the things that's really interesting in Quebec is we use both terms, both critical and strategic minerals. A lot of jurisdictions will use one or the other. We use two, and we use them specifically for the reason that critical minerals are identified as minerals being part of our current economy, that are absolutely crucial to our current economy. Whereas strategic minerals for us are important for the public policies that are going to come into play. So they might not be economically significant today, but we know that they are going to be economically significant if we want to enact certain public policies. And the battery strategy is one of the key examples. Hmm. So to develop public policies to say, okay, we want to transform the minerals, we want to process them, at least a first-pass processing, so that they can be used in electric vehicles. Well, that led us to consider which minerals go into electric vehicles. And obviously, you know, at the top of the list, you have lithium, graphite, nickel, cobalt, manganese. You also need copper, of course. And so that's one of the key items that really helped us narrow down what minerals do we want in our critical and strategic mineral plan. That is fascinating. So then just very briefly, then, in a sense, a critical mineral from the Quebec government's point of view is a mineral that's needed, in a sense, you know, in the present right now uh, to keep this economy on the road in its current form. And strategic is more future looking and kind of skating to where the puck is going. That is exactly right. I could not have said that better myself. That is exactly (laughs) right. I am quoting Wayne Gretzky, as you know. Uh, So excellent. So now what does this mean then for explorers, I assume they're a part of this equation somewhere, right? And they're having a very difficult time right now in Canada. You know, we just had a show last week with the CEO of Pear Tree, Ron Birnbaum, 
and he yes. was saying how, uh, you know, there's like the flow through share structure. It's kind of deep in the weeds kind of tax policy thing. But, you know, they're really facing a lot of difficulties. Yes, there was the critical minerals action plan federally. So um, in a sense, what's the plan for explorers? Because right now, at least outside of Quebec, they're feeling a lot of uncertainty. And for all of the talk of critical minerals and the importance of them, it seems like to a certain degree, they're being left out in the cold. So how is it in Quebec? What is the plan for explorers? Is there a plan? That's a very good question. So for explorers, there's a few components to this. Of course, Quebec is a part of the same market economy as all the other Canadian provinces. So of course, explorers in Quebec feel a little bit of the same hurt that other explorers feel. I would say that there's quite a few initiatives in Quebec that somewhat alleviate some of this, this burden. I can't say that we will alleviate 100%, but we can do things that will help. One of the things that we do, of course, is we have fairly generous tax credit system for explorers in the province. The other thing that we uh, that is available is also certain programs. You know, exploration companies that explore and have made a discovery can apply for programs such as our support for uh, for critical and strategic minerals in the sense that they can do geometallurgical and geoenvironmental work, for instance, and they can do that earlier. And the reason this is important is because it helps set your project aside. It really helps highlight it to say, well, we're at the exploration stage, but we already know what the processing potential is going to be. We already know something about how it can be processed. We already know something about what the residual issues are going to be in terms of refractory minerals. And that really helps distinguish these projects a little bit more than any other exploration project. Another thing that we do is we've, we've really applied a lot of effort into our geoscientific understanding of critical and strategic minerals. So we've developed a network of researchers that look into how we can best explore for and how we can best process these strategic minerals. So although I can't say, well, it's going to be a lot rosier, it certainly is not going to be as bad. Interesting. So there are, in a sense, ways of encouraging this exploration, because, of course, it's at the very beginning of this whole process. And yeah, it's just with all the money flying around. And then, you know, then you see these guys, these tiny little companies just struggling, you know, to pay their two employees, you know. Uh, exactly. So now the Quebec, you mentioned there was a update to the action plan recently in Quebec. So how are you guys? So, you know, you told us kind of the genesis of how, you know, Quebec was thinking of it around COVID and, you know, how the, the thinking, which is super interesting and frankly, it sounds fairly forward looking. Uh, now, how do you, how does it evolve? Like how, you know, you mentioned there's been a recent update. Right. What has changed in your plan? So to sort of recap it in a nutshell, our plan was first published in October of 2020. And we set out a plan that was initially 2020 to 2025. And last January, so about a month to the day, our Minister of Natural Resources, Madame Blanchette Vizina, published an update to the action plan that spans from 2023 to 2025. And what we've done is we've added certain actions into the different orientations of our action plan. So things like supporting the deployment of a scientific network 
So this really helps with the knowledge base of critical and strategic minerals. Supporting companies at the development stage, you know, making uh, Quebec a strategic ally in a critical and strategic mineral field internationally, uh, driving the digital transformation of mines. These are all actions that have been updated in our plan. So we've taken what we've already published, we've updated it with more items, and we've also reviewed some of the minerals within the plan. So, for instance, aluminum, uh, including alumina and bauxite, are now a part of our critical and strategic minerals. So is apatite and germanium and manganese. And we've also added high-purity iron and high-purity silica in our strategic and mineral plan. And this takes into account forward-looking technologies that are going to come about. So, for instance, if I just you know, highlight the high purity iron amongst the uh, the six. A lot of iron, you know, a lot of steel manufacturers are transitioning away from classical steel manufacturing to using electric arc infrastructure. And that infrastructure requires a high purity iron with less deleterious elements within it. And Quebec can deliver on some of that. So we've really taken into account the fact that the world is transitioning this is how we've structured our plan, and this is what we now include in terms of minerals within our plan. And that was announced just last month. Okay, fascinating. So fairly fresh news here. And when a mineral is included then in either a critical or strategic list, what does that mean in real world terms, like what changes if all of a sudden, you know, you mentioned uh, alumina and bauxite, does that mean all of a sudden there's a, I don't know, uh, some kind of, I guess, tax credits or does that turn into, yes. hey, it, maybe we need a processing facility. Can anybody build a processing facility? We'll match, you know, 20% or whatever the case is. Uh, what that, does it that, mean? That That's exactly right. So in certain cases, we can deploy more capital in terms of developing processing facilities. In certain cases, it means that we can support the development uh, within the mineral chain. So, for instance, aluminum, Quebec has a really, you know, a healthy and important series of aluminum smelters. And so we've taken into account what we can do to help them. But in cases such as appetite, well, we can help develop these appetite mines under certain auspices. So for instance, one of the interesting financial arms of the Quebec government is Investissement Québec. Investissement Québec has a fund called Resources Québec, and they can apply capital to critical and strategic minerals. And that's really one of the uh, interesting items that we can include within our, our help to projects going forward. Okay, very interesting. And another issue. And again, this is probably more on the exploration front. And after sure. this, this question, maybe we'll go to what, what it means for bigger miners. But I, I suppose this does affect bigger miners too. I mean, one of the big issues we've been hearing here for a few years, which seems to be starting to be addressed, I think I just saw a story last week, is permitting. Permitting time's taking a while. It sounds like I think I saw a headline just recently that the federal government is really looking to streamline permitting times which is quite something actually, because it's something we've been discussing here for years. What is your view on permitting as far as Quebec is concerned? I guess there's several like levels of jurisdiction. Uh, how, tell us about permitting in Quebec. Well, that's a good question. So Quebec has, just like all their 
other provinces, other Canadian provinces, is the jurisdictional authority for natural resources. And our permitting process essentially is relatively close to about 24 months, if all the questions are answered in a timely fashion, roughly. In Quebec, there are bills every year to try to streamline what it is that uh, proponents need to put together. Since uh, I think over the past 15 years, give or take, that bill has actually streamlined about 30% of the administrative costs relative to developing natural resources. So year after year, we table a bill to really narrow down what it is that is required. Also, we have pilot projects where we've put together all of our uh, different ministries and all of our stakeholders around the same table with the proponents. And this coordination office is the name of the uh, of the initiative. This coordination office essentially works with the proponent to try to streamline what the permitting effort looks like. And all the ministries get together and say, well, we could do this and this and this concurrently, and that might streamline for your specific project. So in certain cases, that's quite interesting, and it can be a, a, a big help. But of course, one of the key things is that the proponent has to be in touch with the government as early and as often as they can so that they can, you know, you, they have an idea of which questions are going to be highlighted on their projects. So as often as, as a proponent can, be in touch with the government to understand, okay, what's coming next? That's really one of the biggest things that can help the permitting process. Exactly. So in a sense, uh, be active, not passive as a miner. And uh, Precisely. You, know, you want to speed things up, be engaged. Exactly. The government of Quebec is accessible. My deputy minister loves to say that, you know, small is beautiful. We're not, you know, 100 million in Quebec. We're a few key government agencies. We regularly speak to each other. We know each other. We can be in touch with each other. So we can really help facilitate things if you're in touch. And we're also quite present as well, both within Quebec and we go to various events outside of Quebec as well. So we're really making an effort to be a conscientious effort to be as present and as you know forward looking as possible in that sense. You know, uh, as far as partnerships with First Nations and Indigenous groups, can you speak a little bit just about does the government reach out? Like, how are things going? Are there many frictions in Quebec or do people, you know, how are the partnerships going between miners and Indigenous groups in Quebec? Well, that's a good question. It would evolve on a case by case basis. In general, though, what I would highlight is, among other things, our uh, James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, which is a modern treaty that was signed between the government of Quebec, between the EUSG of James Bay, and the Inuit of Nunavik. Uh, so the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, which was initially signed in 1975, but ratified in 2002, and has really led to an understanding of how natural resources can develop in that territory. So essentially the mechanisms are understood between all of the different parties. Once again, what's really important though is to engage, often engage early with all of the stakeholders. And you know we can help put you in contact with the different stakeholders. That's one of the key things that will help as much as possible is to be in touch. Got it. And as far as talent, we hear in the mining industry that there's going to be a whole lot of retirements and that younger people are not necessarily 
going into geology or mining. Do you have a sense, is there going to be the talent really that is required? Is there going to need to be initiatives? Uh, what is your sense on that front? That's a great question. And it's one that is not just in Quebec, it's throughout the entire industry. Attracting talent is one of the key challenges that not just Quebec, but everybody's going to be facing going forward. I can say that Quebec does have a few initiatives that are maybe a little bit distinctive and that need to be highlighted. Quebec has the uh, Institut National des Mines, which is a, a group that is dedicated to highlighting the career potential, the career opportunities within the mining sector. Of course, when we think of the mining sector, the first thing we think of happens to be, or in my case, I'm a geologist, so I think of geologists, but also engineers, metallurgists and miners. But really, there's a suite of careers that can develop in and around the mining industry from, say, for instance, nurses or, you know, people that work on on camps for extended periods on logistics uh, officers. Um, really, the, the, the mining industry is very diverse. The mining industry, you know, it needs a lot of people. And there are initiatives in Quebec, notably through l'Institut National des Mines, to try to help develop specific training for that, uh, for that career development. I assume you've been seeing the headlines about nickel in the last, you know, three weeks. You know, like a lot of nickel mines are shutting down in the West because all of a sudden Indonesia, thanks to Chinese processing facilities and Chinese investment in Indonesia, Basically, the nickel market is totally flooded, and it's kind of the classic conundrum of when you have kind of a state-backed entity, how does a capitalist you know, system compete? What is Quebec doing? If there's a nickel mine, like how does Quebec approach that issue? That's a really good question, and it's one that expands well beyond the borders of Quebec, because the same question could be asked of any jurisdiction. So how do we do it? How do we tackle this issue where you have a jurisdiction, namely China, that they strongly influence certain markets and nickel being one of the key ones. What's important to Quebec is to be sure that we have the potential and the processing facilities that are stabilized. So that's one of the important things. So for instance, in Quebec, we, we have nickel mines such as Raglan and, and Canadian royalties that do develop nickel. And of course, we have neighbors in Ontario that can process nickel and we have a small pyramid of you know exploration projects that might be able to move forward so what we're doing is we're setting the table so that we can as fluidly as possible bring nickel into production in quebec we understand that the market is cyclical though i mean there are, there are days where it's going to go fantastic and there are days that are going to be terrible quebec is not shielded from this market reality but in the long term by essentially creating a situation where developers in Quebec can find a certain amount of stability or might be somewhat shielded from market events, that really is uh, the best thing that we can do. A mechanism that we do have in Quebec, especially for explorers, is a partnership with the government crown corporation called SOCEM. So SOCEM is an explorer uh, by mandate. And there, they, the SACM is essentially shielded from market forces to a certain extent, but they develop partnerships with companies and they can invest in exploration level projects to help them move forward. And it's all based on technical merit. So it's not based on if it's the flashiest promoter. It really is based on the rocks. Do the rocks have significant potential? Yes or no. And if yes, 
Sakem would be interested in partnering, or Sakem might have projects in their portfolio that they find important and they can option out to different uh, different explorers. So we do have certain instruments and certain crown corporations that can really assist in that uh, in that space. And just as a final question, Quebec seems to have a pretty good reputation right now in terms of its approach to mining. What advice do you have? For, you know, we have listeners from all over the world, you know, Latin America, Australia, the U.S., you know, who are sometimes policymakers. Uh, you know, there's not a ton of mining media out there. Do you have any, you know, advice from your perspective, from your experience? What would you say to them as far as how they might go about their task of securing critical minerals, developing mining within their own jurisdictions? I think that one of the things that we really need to remember is that we're not necessarily in direct competition with one another. The pie is growing. The demand is growing. And what we need to keep in mind, not just in Quebec, but everywhere, what we need to keep in mind is that we have to develop resilient supply chains and we have to develop these supply chains in collaboration with each other. Not every jurisdiction, not every state in the United States, and not every country in South America, and not every con not every province in, in, in Canada is going to develop the same resources at the same pace. Some will concentrate on certain minerals and others on different ones. And the most important thing to remember is that we're not necessarily in direct competition with one another. We need to develop as many of these resources as possible if we want to meet the global challenges that are in front of us. If there's questions about how we've done it or or maybe collaboration partnerships that are that can be thought of, of course, we're willing to listen. We want to collaborate. We're quite open on the idea of of meeting different jurisdictions to see how they're coming up to this challenge and to see how they're addressing difficulties that they might be uh, going through. Uh, the idea of collaborating is an essential one going forward. It's not just Quebec, it's everywhere in the world. And we want to be one of the stable, reliable partners that can develop, that can be part of a stable, resilient supply chain for critical minerals. Jonathan Lafontaine, Strategic Advisor for Mineral Exploration and Promotion for Quebec's Ministry of Natural Resources. Thank you for joining us on this week's Northern Miner podcast. Thank you very much for having me. If possible, I would like to invite people to come to PDAC. We have a Quebec Unique Mining Ecosystem Day, and uh, you're all very welcome to come along. You will see some of the government front people that are willing to present what the government actually does. And in the afternoon, you have 15 different mineral promoters that are going to be there to show you what they can do in the province as well. Wonderful. Thank you again. And will you be there, Jonathan? Yes, I will. I will be there and feel free to come and have a chat. Tell me what it is that you're looking for and let's see what we can do to help. So good company as well. Well, thank you once again, Jonathan. Great to see you and we will see you next time. All the best. Bye-bye. Once again, a big shout out and thank you to Kirkland Lake Discoveries for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner. And again, thank you to Jonathan Lafontaine for sharing an insider's view on how the Quebec government is approaching critical and strategic minerals, a fascinating discussion. 
So as it stands, things continue to be interesting out here. I hope you enjoyed the show, dear listener. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.